Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It's good to be here with you again with the Word of God open in front of us, knowing that uh, He is faithful to His Word and that He will continue to encourage us as His people from His Word by His Spirit. I, I pray that you will uh, have your heart prepared uh, by the liturgy that has gone before us and by your own personal preparation to be in uh, worship and in the Word of God together now this morning. Uh, I thank you for taking the time out of your day to be here and, and uh, build up your spiritual life and the lives of those that may be sitting around you at this time. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 again, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 and 16. These are wonderful verses. Of course, the entire book has is, has been a wonderful study, <clears throat> and I'm, uh, I'm so thankful that you've been uh, with us through this study, and I'm praying that God will continue to bless us as we faithfully work our way through it. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, and find out what God has for us here. Uh, do you ever wonder where you are spiritually? I mean, do you think about or ask yourself, am I growing spiritually? I know I've I've asked those questions of myself from time to time. Uh, we, we may quiz ourselves about our spiritual maturity and get a bit frustrated by it, never really knowing if we're progressing as we should. Um, so spiritual maturity, figuring out whether or not we are heading in the right direction uh, is something that, that's necessary but difficult. Um, you really never know if you're being too hard on yourself or too lenient on yourself. Most of the time we end up giving ourselves a break for some reason or another, like I've been too tired, I've been too busy, too distracted. And that's the reasons I haven't seen the, the type of growth that I think I ought to be seeing. And the thing, of course, that we use in this self-examination is our mind, um, which the Bible tells us, according to the prophet Jeremiah, has been deeply affected by sin. In fact, Jeremiah says our minds are uh, wicked and evil. And so it's, it's challenging, to say the least, to use our own capacity to determine where we are spiritually. It seems that the tools we have at our disposal are unreliable at best. So finding an accurate and consistent barometer of spiritual maturity is the holy grail of sanctification. I think today's passage is going to go a long way to helping us out in this particular area. So let me read for you verses 15 and 16. I believe that uh, the entire chapter, Philippians 3, was read to you earlier. But let me read for you 15 and 16 again. And... Uh, make a few comments before we dive into them particularly. The Apostle Paul says this, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Of course, these verses relate to spiritual maturity. Paul wants his readers to agree with his assessment of the Christian life. And this assessment he's been laying out here verse by verse through the entire letter. And he wants to have us, his readers, agree with him, not just so that he can feel good that he's accomplished his goal of persuasion, but he wants us to agree with his assessment of the Christian life that he's laid out here 
because he knows when we agree with him, it means that we are striving side by side with him in the ministry of the gospel and that we are striving side by side with others who have agreement with Paul in this perspective of the Christian life. And so Paul knows that if we are in agreement with his assessment of the Christian life, we are growing spiritually. And so I want to look at these verses closely and see if we can maybe determine how we're doing spiritually on a more objective level. Paul is saying in these two verses, if I could uh, retranslate them, if you're spiritually mature, you're going to think how I've been describing the Christian life. He says, this is how gospel partners think. In time, if you stay in the word, God will make this plain to you. But you need to be sure not to slip back into immature thinking. So here we have a couple of verses that's gonna, that are going to help us accurately evaluate our spiritual progress. I think this is going to be valuable for each of us. I have three points I want to make. The first is this. Mature gospel partners think like this. Mature gospel partners think like this. He says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. So in verse 15, he uses the word think, and he uses it not by way of a command, but by way of a strong encouragement. Let us think this way. And he includes himself in that. This is an important word in this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. He used this word to think more than in any other letter that he wrote. He used it 10 times in this letter. And so it's an important word in the book of Philippians. So how was Paul using this word to think? And what did he hope to accomplish by using it so often? In verse 15 here, the word is used in the present tense form, which indicates a continual practice in Paul's view. Let us continually be thinking this way, is how it could be literally translated. Just from this information, we know that Paul believed that spiritual growth is something in the present, not the past. Let me hear, say that again. Paul believes that spiritual growth must determine by what is currently happening in the life of the Christian, not by what has happened in the life of the Christian. Many Christians recall their conversion or their past Christian exploits. They remember the summer camp experience when they gave their heart to Jesus, or they recall that missions trip that they, they, they remember so fondly and all the great things that God did on that trip, and recall when they were reading their Bible so faithfully in days gone by. But Paul is telling us just by the form or the present tense form of this word that he thinks spiritual maturity can only be accurately evaluated by what's happening now. Christianity is always a present concern. Yesterday doesn't matter when it comes to evaluating your spiritual progress. Are you growing today? Can you see signs of spiritual maturity today? Is what Paul wants us to think. I want to show you here by reviewing some of the places he used the word think in this letter. I want, to, I, want to, I want to help to show you that Paul is encouraging us by the, the, the way he uses this word to think in a whole new disposition. 
He wants us to start thinking in a whole new way and maybe even creating a new direction in life. Paul introduces this word in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1. If you have your Bible with you, which I hope you do, why don't you turn with me to chapter 1 and I want to read for you verses 3 through 7 and then I'm going to work my way through the book of Philippians and show you how Paul uses this word. So he introduces the word for the first time in in verses 3 through 7. He says, he goes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now listen to the way he uses the word. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. That word to feel in the English translation is actually the word to think. It's, It's translated to feel here, but it's translated to think in 315 and 16. It's right for me to think this way about you. Think what way? To think that these Philippian believers were actually partners in gospel ministry. It was right for Paul to think this way because he knew them. He knew their hearts. He knew that God was working in them. It's right for me to think this way about you. This is what we see in the very first usage of this word to think. And then I want you to jump forward to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he uses it twice there. Be of one mind. Be of one mind. Think the same way. Be in agreement. Biblical, doctrinal agreement with one another. And then we jump down to verse 5 of chapter 2. And here's an important usage of this word. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think the way Jesus thinks is what Paul was saying. Paul's exhortation here in the entire letter is to get the Philippian believers, to get you and I to start thinking, being, and acting like Jesus. Have this mind, think like Jesus. And then we come to our passage in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let's think like Jesus. Let's think like gospel partners would think. Let's be in agreement with one another. Let's make sure our thoughts, our practices are in line with Jesus Christ. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat with you a little bit and go forward to verse 19 of chapter three. Look what, look what Paul says in verse 19 of chapter three and how he uses this word to think. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. That with minds is actually this same word, to think. Their minds are not set on the way Christ thinks, but on the way the world thinks. They're not reflecting the mind of Christ, they're reflecting a selfish mind, the mind of the world. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, and I'll end our survey with this, 4 verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That word to agree or those words to agree are the same words that we're talking about here, to think. 
I want these two ladies who were evidently not getting along with each other, I want them to start agreeing in the Lord, thinking like Jesus would think. If you'll just think in unison with Christ, your disagreements will, will be solved. And on a side note here, this is actually <laughs> the remedy to many relational problems. If you'll just think like Christ, your relationship with your spouse will be resolved. If you'll just think like Jesus, your relationship with your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, your children will be resolved. If you will both just think like Jesus. So, so what is it exactly that defines gospel partner thinking? That's what I'm after today is to answer that question. What is it that defines or describes gospel partner thinking? How ought gospel partners to think? So let's look at the immediate context here. I'm going to look at the, the, the greater context in a minute. But for right now, in the next few moments, I want to show you the immediate context. The verses surrounding verses 15 and 16. And from these surrounding contextual verses here in chapter 3... I want to show you four things. First of all is this, in verses 5 through 8, we'll see that a gospel partner has an understanding of Jesus' value. Look at verses 5 through 8. Paul's describing his own experience. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever was gain I had, that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so the, the gospel partner, at least in this little passage, verses 5 through 8, thinks or understands the value of Jesus. Do you understand the value of Jesus? Do you value Jesus as you should? Evidently, the value of Jesus trumped Paul's pedigree, his status, his accomplishments, his education. Everything was trumped by Jesus in Paul's mind. How much do you value Jesus? Secondly, a gospel partner in his thinking, understands justification. In verse 9, we see this. Paul said, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that is from God and depends on faith. So biblical justification is something that gospel partners understand. They don't miss it on this one. No, gospel partners understand that biblical justification is something initiated by God and appropriated by faith. Initiated by God and appropriated by faith. It's not initiated by us and appropriated by good works. No, God begins it and we, and we appropriate the work of Christ on our behalf by faith. No one has ever accepted, no one has ever accepted by God because of their good works. The Bible's abundantly clear on this matter. They understand, the gospel partners do at least, they understand and embrace the justification that God offers in Jesus Christ comes to anyone who will believe on Jesus, who will put their trust on Jesus, who will live their life on Jesus. 
or for Jesus. And so gospel partners in this immediate context are people who understand the value of Jesus, who understand justification, and thirdly, in verses 10 and 11, who have a passion for Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection and, the, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So gospel partners have a passion for Jesus Christ. This is how we ought to be thinking. If you're mature, you will think this way, Paul's saying in verse 15. And what do we see here in verses 10 and 11? Paul has a desire to know Jesus more intimately. Paul already knew Jesus salvifically. He knew that Jesus died for his sins. He knew a lot of doctrine, more than most of us, maybe more than all of us combined. He knew Jesus, but he says here in verse 10 that he wants to know him more, more intimately, more personally, more deeply. Secondly, he says he wants to be conformed to his image to share in his sufferings, to become like him in his death. Jesus suffered because of sin. He suffered at the sight of sin. He suffered when he saw what sin did to people that he loved. Jesus suffered. Do we want to be conformed to his image? We ought to view sin in the same way. It ought to distress us. It ought to make us want to pray and run and, and do what we can to avoid it and fight against it. And then being conformed to the image of Jesus in his death, what does that mean? How was Jesus in his death? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He was humble, patient, kind. He thought of the needs of others before his own. He was a, a, a lamb going to the slaughter. Paul wanted that to identify him. So Paul's passion for Jesus was that he wanted to know him more intimately, be conformed to his image. And then thirdly, we see in verse 11, to be drawn into eternal communion with him, eternal communion with Jesus. So gospel partner thinking includes an understanding of Jesus's value, an understanding of justification, a passion for Jesus, and then in verses 12 and 13, a wholehearted commitment to pursuing spiritual growth. And here's where we're working our way towards verses 15 and 16. This has been, I, I've been teaching you here this morning, preaching to you so that you'll understand how gospel partners ought to think. Paul has laid it out for us and he's saying this is how you ought to think. And this is the, what we're at now in verses 12 and 13, a wholehearted commitment, commitment to pursuing spiritual growth. Let me read it for you. Not that I have already obtained this. Attained what? Intimacy with Jesus. Paul wanted more intimacy. He's, he's acknowledging he hasn't arrived there yet. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. A commitment, a wholehearted commitment to pursuing spiritual growth and not resting until it's accomplished. Paul is by no means claiming perfection here, but he's simply acknowledging his desire for more of Jesus. Friends, we will never have our fill of Christ's likeness because Christ is infinite. You can never get enough of Christ's likeness because he is infinite. No matter how deep you go, Jesus is always deeper. Now, no matter how high you go, Jesus is still higher. 
What Paul is talking about here in verses 12 and 13 is his embrace of a passionate pursuit of Christ-likeness. This is how gospel partners think just in this immediate context. Paul said in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way that I just laid out for you. Now let's expand our our perspective here a bit, get to the extended context still in the book of Philippians, but just a little bit beyond the parameters of our, our current chapter, let's, let's, let me show you a few other things here. And I'm doing this because I want you to know that your spiritual pulse. I want you to see objectively whether or not you're truly spiritually growing, whether you are not a, a growing, passionate gospel partner. So the, the extended context of the book of Philippians tells us that because of spiritual maturity, gospel partners understand the church and their role in the church. So many Christians are confused about what the church is and their role in the church. But Paul here in in Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 just kind of refines it down to the bare bones. And he says we need to be like Jesus in our relationships with one another. We need to consider others as more important than ourselves, like Jesus did when he sacrificed himself and went to the cross on our behalf. We we need to understand that in the church. We need to serve one another, love one another, consider others' needs before our own. And then additionally, in, in the same chapter, 2, verses 12 and 13, Because of spiritual maturity, gospel partners understand understand sanctification, that is, daily spiritual growth, and how that sanctification glorifies Jesus at the same time brings us joy. You remember what we studied in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, and we discovered that it wasn't just his good pleasure that was at stake, but it's our good pleasure. When we work the gospel into the nitty-gritty of daily Christian living, it brings us joy and glorifies Jesus at the same time. Gospel partners understand that, and so they work hard at becoming more like Jesus on a daily basis. Next we see in the same chapter, chapter 2, towards the end, that, that gospel partners understand how their vocation fits into the kingdom of God. And he gives us the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy was a professional minister. He he was a paid pastor of the Ephesian church and a paid missionary that went on missionary journeys with Paul. This was Timothy giving us an example of what paid ministers ought to be thinking and how their vocation ties into gospel partnership. And then he brings in this wonderful and beautiful A humbling example of Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. A layman from the city of Philippi who attended the Philippian church who received this letter. A man who was committed to the furtherance of the gospel. A man who, who gave up so much to make sure that Paul could continue his ministry of the gospel. A true, genuine gospel partner. We see there how, how Epaphroditus viewed his own vocation for the cause of Christ. He saw it as a a companion to the gospel ministry, not not a competition with the gospel ministry. Oh, if we could have people think like Epaphroditus, people in secular employment struggle so much with the balance between uh, church and vocation, 
or vocation and gospel ministry when in fact there should be no conflict at all. God has placed each and every one of you who find yourselves in secular ministry right where you are so that you will partner with with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with every other Christian who's gone before us and who's presently living, partner with all of these to extend the gospel into the regions beyond, including where you work. Well, friends, friend, this, is, this is wonderful things to think about regarding how gospel partners ought to be thinking. The second po- main point of, of this sermon is found in the second half of verse 15. Mature gospel partners respond to God's revelation. Look at this. This is interesting. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So at the end of verse 15, Paul says that if you don't think like this, if you don't agree with my assessment of the Christian life, something is amiss. That word otherwise there in verse 15 is actually heterodox. You know what that means, right? It's the opposite of orthodox. It's heterodox. Something's wrong. Something's amiss. Paul said, if you don't agree with this assessment of the Christian life, of this assessment of what it means to be a gospel partner, something's wrong in your Christian thinking. But be of good cheer because God is going to continue to reveal to you himself to help you understand what it means to be a gospel partner. Listen again. If, any, if in anything you think otherwise, heterodox, God will reveal that also to you. God will make it plain to you. Now, this is, I think, important to understand. You'll eventually come around to understanding the things that Paul is describing. Notice how Paul said this is going to happen. With enough exposure to God's revelation, you'll eventually come to clear understanding of what it means to be a gospel partner. So keep saturating your mind with the Word of God. Keep saturating your mind until it reflects or, or, or imitates the passions of Paul. Or, or more importantly, the heart of Jesus. It is in God's nature to reveal himself to humanity. He's been doing this since the beginning, since Adam and Eve. God reveals himself in creation. We see that in Psalm 19 and Romans 1.20. God reveals himself in scripture, Psalm 119, that we've been studying as a church in the recent past. And then, of course, finally and ultimately, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, John 1.18. So what Paul is saying is we can know God, we can know his will for us, and we can grow spiritually. We can become spiritually mature gospel partners. The only reason that we may not is because of sin. So do you want to know God and his will? Do you respond to his revelation? This is how you get to know God and his will, is by simply hearing his revelation and responding to it. Let me give you quickly, really quickly, five biblical principles for knowing God and his will. The first is this, acknowledge his right over everything, is acknowledge God's right over everything. Whose universe is this? It's God's universe, right? We, we don't have much to argue or much to say about that. This is his universe. He can do what he wants with it and in it, and he does. It's his right. 
So in scripture, you're gonna come across things because it's revelation of God. You're gonna come across things that you don't like. Let me say this as lovingly as I can, get used to it. You're gonna hear things in scripture that don't set well with you. Our sin has caused our nature to be naturally opposed to God and his will. When God reveals himself, it confronts us and this will offends us, his will shames us and it causes us to recoil. But we need to acknowledge his right to say what he wants to say and have the standards he wants to establish. Secondly, the second principle of knowing God and his will, commit to obeying God before you know the command. <laughs> Did you hear that? That's not easy to do. Commit to obey God before you hear the command? Yes. Why? Because this is his universe. He has the right to can't command what he will, to expect what he wants. So this willingness to obey God no matter what is something that we must fight our tendency to resist because of our sin nature. We learn from scripture that we are totally depraved, so every part of us resists God and we must be trained, even as Christians, we must be trained to trust and obey him at every turn. This is what God was doing in the Sinai Desert with the children of Israel, remember? He wanted them to, to learn to obey him before they knew the reason why. Learn to obey God before they knew the reason why. They were required to follow the cloud, remember that? Whenever it moved, they had to follow. The cloud provided shade by day and the pillar of fire provided warmth by night, both of which they needed to survive. The cloud and the fire moved at God's direction and the people just had to pack up and leave at a moment's notice. Through this frustrating obedience training, they learned to trust and obey God in everything. And we also, in modern day Christianity, must believe that God's will for us is always the best also, even when, especially when, we don't understand it. Thirdly, God will never, God's will is never contrary to his word. You've heard people say, you know, it's God's will that, that I divorce my wife. Uh, it, it's God's will that, that I don't pay my taxes. It's God's will this or that or whatever that is diametrically opposed to the revealed will of God. It isn't God's will to disobey God's word, ever. Here, let, me, let me say some simple things about God's will. God's will for believers is what? To believe. <laughs> That's what Jesus said in John 6.40. God's will for unbelievers is to believe. What's God's will for believers? Well, it's, Scripture is full of it, but let me summarize it with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What did he say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, live your life for the cause of Christ. Be a gospel partner. That's the will of God for you, Christian friend. Be a gospel, far, a gospel partner that is daily, moment by moment, being transformed into the image of God. A gospel partner into the image of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, God's will includes intimate communion with Jesus. It's not God's will to ignore Jesus, to ignore his word, to ignore his standards. No, this is what chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 were all about. Paul said, not that I've already obtained it or have been made perfect, but I press on to make Christ Jesus my own. 
I want more of Jesus. I want intimacy with Jesus. So being in constant communion with Jesus promotes intimacy and results in being transformed into his likeness. Growing more intimate with Jesus will help you discern his heart on all matters. This is the key. This produces gospel partners. Fifth and finally, in terms of understanding five biblical principles for knowing God and his will, the fifth and final principle that I want to share with you is this. Following God may lead to unknown places. You remember Abraham? Following God meant to him going to a country he had never been to and knew nothing about. For the Apostle Paul, he was a well-trained Jew who God called to teach the, teach the Gentiles and evangelize the Gentiles. Where might God be calling you? It may be in unknown places, certainly uncomfortable places, but that's the, the final principle here of knowing God and his will. It, it, may, it may turn out that he may lead you in some place you're totally uncomfortable with, totally unfamiliar with totally out of your ballpark. Now let me conclude our sermon this morning by asking you to look at verse 16 with me. And I'm going to show you the third point from that verse. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Let us hold true to what we have obtained. The third point is this, gospel or mature gospel partners stand firm. Stand firm. They hold true I want to also include verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Gospel partners must maintain their focus on becoming like Jesus, pleasing him, and being in agreement with the Scripture's assessment of the Christian life. Not creating their own. Standing firm on the faith once delivered to the saints. See, we cannot drift back into divided allegiances. We can't be so easily moved by human persuasion. And believe me, there's a lot of human persuasion going on right now in our society. Things that are concerning to me as a pastor when I see Christians that I know being duped by an overwhelming persuasion of our own society. We're going to address this in the immediate weeks ahead. We must resist this. We must stand firm. We must hold true to the faith that Paul is delivering to us, to the view of Christianity, to the assessment of Christianity that he has laid out in this letter through these first three chapters. Friends, what a barometer for spiritual growth. Review what I have preached to you today. Pray through what I have preached to you today. Examine your heart with the tools that I have provided with you, for you today, to see whether or not you are growing in your spiritual life, whether or not you are a gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded gospel partner. Friends, that's what we want to be. We want to agree with Christ. We want to agree with Paul and all who agree with Christ and Paul on the matter of Christian living. 
I'm going to pray for you right now and ask God to do that for you. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that we are so easily swayed by popular culture, by, by vain imaginations of smart people. We, we get persuaded easily by things and we get distracted by the world and all that it offers. But your word here, as Paul has laid out for us so succinctly, is really that, that thing that, that is the objective barometer of our spiritual growth. I pray that, that you would use the, the words of my mouth and the meditations on these few verses here in Philippians 3 to encourage the people of Sun Valley Church to examine themselves, to see if in fact they are maturely thinking this way. Oh God, be, be gracious to us, be merciful with us as a weak and weary people. Encourage our hearts in Christ through his word and we'll raise our praises to you. Bless us now, Father, as we go our way this week. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.